recording rooms. Yes. For posterity. Absolutely. For the ages. For the ages. Yeah, the internet is forever. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. Those of you who have not met me, my name is Father Daniel Eddy, and I go to church up just a little further down Congress Street at what was called the Church of the Holy Spirit, is now called Rise Church. And if that confuses you, talk to me at the coffee hour. Uh, I'm a priest in the Charismatic Episcopal Church, which I, every time I mention that I have to say what my father said. My father, an old Yankee congregationalist all his life, I had to say when I told him I was joining the Charismatic Episcopal Church, he said, isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> but I too am an alumnus of the, of the Episcopal Church, uh, so we could always exchange lots of stories about that. But if you have any questions about any of those things, ask me a coffee hour. Uh, it didn't seem to be appropriate to go into the whole long biographical details on, on Sunday morning. Although, I, as I climbed up here this morning, I couldn't help remember the scene in the movie Moby Dick when, uh, when, when Orson Welles, who's the pastor of the church in New Bedford, he climbs up a rope ladder because this is a very nautical chapel, then pulls the rope ladder up after him just in case somebody doesn't like what he's saying. They can't get to him. But it's like I am very, I'm sure that won't happen this morning. I uh, was moved this morning because we are on 4th of July weekend to say something about our country, to say something about where we are as Americans and who we are. And of course, the prayer book has a wonderful prayer, which I'm going to open with. It's called simply, For Our Country. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, we humbly beseech thee that we may always prove ourselves a people mindful of thy favor and glad to do thy will. Thus our land with honorable industry, sound learning, and pure manners. Save us from violence, discord, and confusion, from pride and arrogancy, and from every evil way. Defend our liberties and fashion into one united people, the multitudes brought hither out of many kindreds and tongues. Endue with the spirit of wisdom those to whom in thy name we entrust the authority of government, that there may be justice and peace at home, and that through obedience to thy law we may show forth thy praise among the nations of the earth. In the time of prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness, and in the day of trouble, suffer not our trust in thee to fail. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So most of us can remember the stories about the American Constitutional Convention back in 1787. Um, one of the attenders, one of the delegates, was Benjamin Franklin, uh, who was by then over 80, which gives you some idea. Um, on the final day of deliberation, the new constitution was now completed, and Dr. Franklin was leaving Independence Hall in Philadelphia and was asked a question by a passerby. Well, Dr. Franklin, what have we got? A monarchy or a republic? And Franklin famously said, a republic, if you can keep it. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and 
given to a nation producing the fruits of it. I've been pondering these words of our Lord during this week of Independence Day, the day when we celebrate the birth of the United States of America, 247 years ago. It was very hot in Philadelphia that day when they were finalizing the text of the Declaration of Independence. There was no air conditioning in those days in Independence Hall, and I'm told by at least one unconfirmed source that there was no bathroom in the building either. Sounds familiar. Anyway, one of the delegates, one of those great men referred to as the Founding Fathers was John Adams of Massachusetts. Now, if you know your main history, you know we have some claim on John Adams of Massachusetts because at the time of independence, Maine was a part of Massachusetts. So John Adams is kind of one of us, isn't he? It's a fact that we don't always like to mention, by the way, uh, that we were once part of Massachusetts, but we still have Patriots Day and our love of the Red Sox. It sort of shows that connection, I guess. And it was Adams who first suggested what was to become customary at celebrations of American independence. He wrote to his wife, Abigail, from Philadelphia. He said, this day in July will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commended as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games and sports and guns and bells and bonfires and illuminations. From one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward, forevermore. Solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Adam's colleague, his sometime rival and even political enemy, there was a period of time where they didn't speak to each other, but in the later years of both men's lives, he was a well-respected and beloved friend. This is Thomas Jefferson. They wrote to each other. Wonderful story about them. They both died on the same day. July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day. They both died within a few hours of each other. It was Jefferson who penned those wonderful words that are the foundation of our nation that we remember on the 4th of July. He wrote, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature, and of nature's God, entitles them. A decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to this separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. See, for Americans, these words are at the core of who we are. They echo across the centuries calling to us our ideals, our purpose, 
our vocation as a people. Unlike many countries, America is not based mainly upon geography or social, ancestral, and ethnic connection, although these things are not without importance, to be sure. But America is based on ideas, on truths that are not true because someone says they're true. Not even are they called true because a majority has agreed they are true, but simply because they are obviously true in themselves, self-evidently true. True according to the laws of nature, and nature's God. America is not founded on the mere assertion of rights that are simply congenial to her people, or rights granted by a government whether a kingdom or a republic, but rights given by God and are thus not subject to removal. These are unalienable rights. Unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what is happiness? What is happiness? I have have a suggestion this morning of what it does not mean. It does not mean that God has given us the right to go after whatever makes us feel good. The pursuit of happiness is not the pursuit of pleasure, despite what some would seem to say. Nor does it simply mean the pursuit of well-being or of material success. And it does not mean happiness with that typical and, and indeed terrible modern qualifier, happiness for me. Much sin has been done in the name of those two words, for me. The pursuit of happiness does not mean happiness for me. When Jefferson wrote that, he meant something a little different. First, there's the meaning of pursuit. It doesn't mean chasing after in that context. We think of going after or striving for something. But its older form has a vocational aspect. We think about the pursuit of business or the pursuit of engineering or the pursuit of the law, the pursuit of medicine or the pursuit of uh, carpentry. In other words, pursuit was an activity of life to which one inspired, aspired, excuse me, or felt called. Well, then there's happiness. At the time of the founding, happiness did indeed imply prosperity and physical well-being and the basic needs of life. But also was that it was a moral and religious element to it. A sense of virtue and excellence and the sense of moral goodness. Jefferson himself wrote that virtue is the foundation of happiness. Or to put it in more modern terms, the pursuit of happiness means that God made us free to turn our hearts and lives to working for what was truly and objectively good, not merely what was good for me or for any one of us individually, but for the good which was beyond either public vote or individual opinion. The good which the laws of nature's God wanted us to follow, wanted us to pursue. I suspect, I'm afraid, that many people today, when they hear those words, they think about the pursuit of happiness, and they indeed think it means the pursuit of pleasure, or the right to define one's own self, one's own definition of liberty and happiness. And they tend to react with anger and dismay when someone suggests that nature's God may have in mind 
for true and what, what nature's God may have in mind for true and lasting happiness may be different from their immediate personal pleasures. That should not surprise us, I suppose. Although one might hope we, we had learned better. I'm reminded of the words of Abraham Lincoln, who said, the Bible says somewhere that we are desperately selfish. I think we could have figured that out without the Bible. The Supreme Court of the United States, the great public oracle, is an institution that appears to claim a level of infallibility far and away greater than any religious leader. In what was generally called a landmark case, the court ruled over 30 years ago that the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Note the key words here, the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. You would not be surprised to know that this was the uh, Casey decision that was uh, made in, 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 in 19, uh, 1991 uh, to continue uh, the uh, absolute freedom of killing unborn babies who apparently had missed out on the first right of all the right to life. Now, by the Lord's great mercy, let us not forget to be thankful to him that has been reversed. It hasn't cleared up the problem entirely, or even mostly, but it, it's a step in the right direction. Prayer does work. Sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes it takes a little while. Keep praying. The damage lingers on. The same mindset of the right to define one's own concept of existence uh, over and above what the laws of nature and nature's God clearly state has so entered into and corrupted our national culture that we have recently redefined marriage itself. And we seem to be in the midst of redefining human nature, things that God defined at the very beginning when he said male and female created he them. So what is the point of my brief tour through American history? Only this. Our nation was founded on the basic principle that God is in charge, that he is the source of our rights, and that apart from him, there are no rights except might be granted by those who have the power. Whether king or the frighteningly absolute power of the rule of the majority, or what is often the case, the rule of the loudest voices. There are many of those who take issue with this, they usually say, so when this is brought up, they usually say something about theocracy, or perhaps that, that well-worn constitutional myth, the separation of church and state, they don't want to bring God into it. Side note, the first article of the Bill of Rights was written to protect the church from the government, not to silence the church or prevent the exercise of her prophetic duty. Now, there's a good point here, not to be forgotten as well. It's too easy to cloak one's own attempts at the exercise of tyranny with the idea that he's doing God's will. Always keep that in the back of your mind. Always keep that in the back of your mind. You're not God. Neither am I, for that matter. It can be far too easy to cloak one's own attempts, as I say, of tyranny with the idea that he's doing God's will. Yet our republic has survived and prospered beyond the dreams of any country in human history. Partially, I suggest, by maintaining a sense that our rights are from God. Only by his gift can we claim such success. It's very good 
to take this weekend and celebrate the wonderful gift of our country. It is also good to consider this gift in the light of the Almighty Giver. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, that God executes justice. We should ponder this as we celebrate the nation's founding this week. God executes justice. I don't want you to think I am preaching the immediate doom of America. I'm not a founder of those 19th and 20th century teachers who see the end of the world in the immediate future. I like to say, people say, are you post-mill or pre-mill? I say, I'm pan-mill. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> See, God is in charge because God is in charge, not because I'm making fun of any of those positions, but because God is in charge. God's time is not our time. Isaiah chapter 55 at verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. See, God will deal with the sins of all countries for the sins of America, the sins of all peoples in his own good time, which might be sometime longer than we might think. We must not forget that as Christians, we have a higher hope and even higher loyalty. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 16, reminds us that we desire a better country, a heavenly one. We must not mistake this earthly country for the kingdom of God lest we fall into idolatry. Yet we are also called to be something more than just inhabitants, just waiting for Jesus to return. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how could its saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand that it gives light in all the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I ask you for this 4th of July weekend to remember that we, the church, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are to speak the truth in the public square, not only for Jesus' sake, but for the sake of our fellow citizens, for the sake of our country, for the sake of all men for whom Jesus died. I will close as I started with, with the words of Thomas Jefferson that, that can, and I suggest you ponder them in your hearts. He wrote, can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.